0: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek.
1: And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we have the uh, distinct pleasure of uh, having Greg Grandin on the podcast, um, professor of history at New York University. Is that correct? That That is correct. Yes. And
2: yeah, I'm starting um, at Yale and uh, I mean... Uh,
1: yes, I was just about to say that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was about yeah, to so,
2: Liminal position the summers, so I'm not really sure w- w- what the correct identification
1: is. You're on a frontier between jobs, you might say.
0: <laughs> the borderlands. <laughs> sounds much um, more interesting than it likely feels. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> frontier sounds
2: better than liminal.
0: Um,
1: but yeah, so uh, Greg's author of a book, uh, Fordlandia. Yeah. Um, which is, which is very good but but also more recently um the book The End of the Frontier which I've just finished and very good very relevant to this uh to our our, our sort of current moment in time I would say and um definitely worth checking out but yeah we're we'll just be talking about that in uh, this episode so welcome welcome Greg thanks for having me. um I thought, you know, a good place to start would be with the kind of uh, the ideology of the frontier, uh, where that comes from and what sort of uh, political purpose it served in the early American Republic. Um, you, you have an interesting sort of dichotomy you set up between John Quincy Adams and uh, Andrew Jackson. So, so could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, that dichotomy—I'll get to that dichotomy in a second—but I mean, the, the ideology of the frontier is expansion, and basically, when we're talking about capitalism, whether we're talking about mercantile capitalism or agrarian capitalism, I mean, expansion is built into it, and there's no other country, uh, no other nation that has so embodied that ideal, instantiated that ideal like the United States. I mean, even well before its founding. You know, the whole experience of settled colonialism in the united states was was moving was moving west and um and that that social experience uh, which took place in an environment of racial conflict of theological schism of uh was uh, was was ideologized fairly early on uh and i mean we could go back there is really no and to where one could go back to the beginning of even before the United States was was even, for the first settlers, Anglo settlers at least landed in, in America. The idea of of the new world as as a place to resolve contradictions and 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 uh, and, and and win theological battles and work out problems that Europe that were that was seemingly intractable in Europe was already well well established. So just for the sake of um, just for the sake of the argument, you could just look at the, you know, some of the founding fathers. Uh, you know, they understood that that expansion and ever growing sphere or ever growing polity was was absolutely essential to the maintenance of republican virtue. Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, um, and I go all through that in the book. And and just to jump now, jump forward to that schism that you talked about, or that opposition between John Quincy Adams and and Andrew Jackson that gets a bit into the that gets a bit into the story but um, but but Quincy John Quincy Adams was the last president the sixth president of the coastal coalition or the founders coalition and all of those presidents from Washington to Adams had a vision of expansion but they 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 had a trouble matching theory to desire and there's a lot of things that stood in the way of what they imagined to be a uh, of uh, 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 an uh, empire of freedom from from sea to sea, you know, that without a blot on it, as Thomas Jefferson talked about it. Right. Uh, Native Americans, chattel slavery and Mexico. And Andrew Jackson, you know, the first president of the Jacksonian coalition, kind of matched theory to desire and 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 uh, and, and moved forward quite, quite briskly. <laughs>
0: No, it's so interesting to, to read your book, Greg, which I, I loved and recommending to, to all my uh, comrades and friends, and to see the link between how uh, myth didn't just kind of organically evolve, but how it was appropriated, as you say, for the political desire and for the power uh, of those elites and others – but how that interacts with the imaginary as well as the political theory, political philosophy developed by Madison. So as you, as you say, the, the founders were, were all about expansion, uh, except it, it had to be, especially with Madison, um, theorized in a way that ran counter to Montesquieu and ran counter to the, to the ancients and, and all of the – history of political philosophy that shows that uh, large pieces of land are destructive of freedom and republics right so, 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 yeah. they're, they're, so that's interesting isn't it
2: yeah I mean just I mean there's lots of ways we can end to this but that opposition Montesquieu French theorist, you know he, uh, he represented an established Republican thought that believed that you could only have you could only maintain Republican virtue in a small polity. Because if not, because if in a large in a large republic, all of the corruptions of ambition and and interest and avarice would eat away at virtue, and and Madison and Madison's genius was to flip that on it on its head, and to say that um, that all of those interests and avarices and and ambitions they didn't stand opposed to Republican virtue they were Republican virtue that was the wellspring of, of private property republicanism
0: <laughs> right. from
2: which virtue flowed and the way you maintain it is is contra Ma- Montesquieu is actually to in Madison's word extend the sphere extend the sphere and you take in a greater diversity of interest you dilute the factions you 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 dilute What later would be called class warfare and and, and all of the political conflicts that emerge uh, from the concentration of wealth in a republic founded on absolute private property.
0: Right, and my understanding of Madison is he also bought into the diffusion theory that slavery extending to the territories might be okay because you would diffuse the combustion of of the antagonism between like the slave power and the slaveholders, and and so there was even this this uh, solution um, to 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 uh, su- such an important uh, issue of domination and, and power, right?
2: Yeah, and by the time you get to the eighteen twenties and eighteen thirties westward expansion was understood as a safety valve to a whole host of very you know not just abstractly the way that madison was theorizing it in in uh, in, in federalist paper number 10 but to the very real problems of wage labor of slavery of uh, of of what to do with emancipated people of color, so the West was seen as a safety valve. And the point that I make in the book, it doesn't matter what your position was about those problems. You might be an abolitionist, you might be a you might be a defender of slavery, you might be somebody who wanted to just ameliorate the uh, the slave system and making it a little bit more less onerous, but. But but wherever you stood on those crying contradictions of Jacksonian America in the 1920s and 1930s, the solution was expansion. So whatever, however you understood the the problem and and, and whatever your desired response to the problem, the way that you achieved it was go west, right? And that's the power of 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 of, uh, of the front of what becomes the ideal of the frontier.
1: Yeah. the... Uh... This safety valve is exactly what I wanted to bring up next. Actually, um, you, you draw an interesting contrast between uh, the the revolutions in Europe of 1848, where you know the kind of working class and the and the you know bourgeoisie of all these countries and aristocrats and so on sort of faced off against each other and had these knockdown fights about how they're going to structure their societies. Meanwhile, the United States was invading Mexico and stealing half of its territory. So there, there's, um, yeah, th- there's this, this function, as you say, the safety valve, but it doesn't actually work out quite like uh, people uh, might have hoped, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, well, that idea of an America, a distinct American 1848 that was the exact opposite. Of a European 1848, where 1848 was in Europe, was the beginning of class politics, was the beginning of labor politics, was the realization that liberalism had to be socialized, leading to if not social democracy, then at least a, a, an awareness of the contradictions and the premise of political equality when confronted with massive industrial and growing inequality and alienation and, and miseration. In the United States, you don't have the revolutions of 1848. You don't have the the the, the you know, the gentry uh, squaring off against the artisans, you know, on the barricades, you have the gentry and the artisans joining together and waging race war on the frontier. So that that has the effect of two things, one, maintaining a very individualistic um, uh, um uh, understanding of liberalism right so only, only what is the essence of american exceptionalism is this kind of commitment to a, an individualism that even in other countries that were liberal kind of moved away from that absolute liberal absolute individualist absolutism and then uh, and then that that individual absolutism is inherently racialized because it's because it's because it's forged and maintained and continued through race war on the frontier,
1: right? Yeah, and then on, but then on the other hand, right? You, you, um, wh- I, th- I, think historians might may agree this. Uh, you, 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 maybe could correct me on this, but um, one of the long term consequences of the 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 war in Mexico was the civil war, right? In that. Yeah, that that it, it, you know, sort of ingested this massive territory, which only ramped up the conflict over whether or not these new territories are going to be slave states and free states. So yeah, yeah. It, it, well,
2: I mean, that's the and again, that, that's like one of the main motor paradoxes or contradictions of the of the argument that I'm making right expansion both defers the problem, but 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 accelerates the problem at the same time. and And this manifests itself in real historical events at different, in different ways. And one of them certainly is the, is the civil war, the the movement West historians now over the last 10 or 20 years have been, have, have investigated many different elements of this, the way that manifest destiny was seen as both a way to solve the problem of slavery, even as it accelerated and deepened the problem of slavery, turning it and turning this Moral question into a, into two armed geographic camps, the North, north and South, um, in which that competed with each other. That eventually exploded in the Civil War. So it's, it is an example of which you know uh, expansion allows a deflection of the problem in this particular case, chattel slavery, um, while at the same time deepening the problem. So it, so it, the whole machine can only continue operating as long as. As long as you know expansion is is an ongoing option, and as soon as it's not, you know the, the 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 crash comes pretty quickly.
0: There's a lot of a lot we can learn, it seems, from the history of this myth and how it was appropriated successfully or not by. Um, either the reactionary forces or liberals or leftists, it seems. Uh, could you could you talk first a bit about Turner's thesis, uh, and then maybe we can get to how it gets inverted?
2: Sure. So first, the first thing I'd, I'd say is that, you know, in, in, the word frontier up until the mid-19th century really just meant boundary or border. It didn't kind of signal this existential zone of civilizational creation, of of in, of individualism. Um, it, you know, it, the cognates in other languages and... Particularly Spanish, frontera, it's still, It still it means border or boundary or military front. And the United States, the effect of the Mexican American War, which uh, which uh, that, which which kind of disassociates the experience of the border from the frontier. It's after the Mexican American War, the U.S. finally gets a border on it on its south, more or less. There's the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and then there's the and then there's the Gadsden Purchase, and so the U.S. gets its border, but the frontier kind of continues, and and it's it's from the, the mid 19th mid 19th century onward that the frontier kind of begins to float free, as an abstraction, and becomes understood in a ver- in this very exceptionally U.S. way as this place of individualism, and that's where Turner comes in. Frederick Jackson Turner was an historian uh, from Wisconsin. He taught at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and he was a fairly unknown assistant professor when he gave a paper at the at the World's Fair at the, at, at, in Chicago in 1893, um, and uh, and the paper was the significance of the frontier in American history, and and Turner there makes the argument that what is unique and special about the United States, and this is he breaks from kind of a Boston Brahmin historical. Profession that looked to Europe as the source of everything good about the United States. Um, Turner says no. What was what's unique about American equality and American individualism was forged in the on the frontier in in the wilderness. You know, and 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 this essay functions as both idea as a as both social theory. He was a Hegelian. He had read you know Marx. He had read a lot of European continental philosophers or so he was a he was a he was there's a way in which Turner represents a kind of Americanization of a lot of Hegelian thought and it was also functioned as ideology people and stuff began to hold up the you know the the you know that what was unique about American was was the frontier and why let me just say one more thing why Turner is important is that he begin he downplays a lot of the racism Explicit racism uh, the, of, of, of the historical profession that mm. held up the Anglo-Saxon blood gene as the originator of everything good uh, about the <laughs> United States. Or, uh, well, you know, or, or Anglo-Saxon blood, you know, Woodrow Wilson, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, you mm. know, the Bancroft historians, the, the Adams, all the historians with the, name, with the last name Adams, they all tended to be explicitly racist. Turner downplays all of that, and he also he also downplays the the explicit violence of conquest, and he emphasizes things like commerce and trade and community building and trust and laws and 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 technology and and um and and this is important because the U.S. is about to launch itself into the world, right? Five years after. He gives this paper in 1893. The U.S. the U.S. you know uh, uh, invades Cuba and the Philippines and Puerto Rico and basically establishes itself as the beginning of a, world, of a world power, and it can't administer the rest of the world as if it were Indian removal writ large, as if it were, you know, uh, the Louisiana Purchase writ large, which was explicitly based on a kind of Anglo-Saxon supremacy. So Turner deracinates. American settler colonialism, he universalizes it. And the importance of the frontier thesis is that even if you acknowledge that there's violence involved in frontier expansion, in Indian removal, in, in ethnic cleansing, you could credibly argue that that violence and extremism would be left behind as the U.S. moves into the world and moves into the future. It will become more liberal, more international, more universal. So that's the importance of Turner and the frontier thesis. Um, you know, and, 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 and is, the, is it, it allows for um, a whitewashing, if you wanna call it that, of, of the of the of of the of the racism of settler colonialism.
0: You can almost see it presaging liberal or neoliberal um, free market embrace of, of uh, or even neoconservative embrace of spreading democracy and the way that that kind of expansion. And so maybe we can get to, to how the frontier uh, moves uh, from just lands to markets to uh, imperialism. But uh, but there is at least even a liberal acquiescence or support of this this Notion that the class struggle and other violence that uh, is so historically real can be um, argued to be dealt with by uh, pursuing these other frontiers. Yeah, by expansion.
2: Well, you know, you you know, you brought it up earlier about the you know the way the left buys into the notion of expansion, and and if an argument can be made, a very depressing argument when one looks back at U.S. history, to almost think that there's almost no use past because there is no moment of liberal progress. there is no expansion of the promise of liberal equality to marginalized groups that hasn't been paid for and made possible through expansion. So you start with Andrew Jackson and, and the expansion of suffrage to illiterate, unpropertied men. That was absolutely dependent on Indian removal and and the, and the expansion of the us polity west and the, and the wealth created from 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 that from indian removal and genocide um and chattel slavery uh you look at the abolition and the end of chattel slavery it was absolutely dependent on the pacification of the west right there was a there was a pact among you know different sectors of the of, of the of the uh, of the union that basically they'll fight the civil war but also the you know, but also, um, you know, uh, concurrently with the with the past, some of the worst violence against Native Americans took place simultaneously with the freeing of African-Americans. The, the progressive m- moment, movement in, the, in 1898 was was went hand in hand with the expansion of U.S.'s overseas empire uh, the war of 1898 and the opening of, uh, of foreign markets. You know, in even even the New Deal, uh, the, the the consolidation of the New Deal was made possible through uh, the opening and, and uh, of U.S. markets, which allowed for the establishment of a of a kind of less revanchist corporate bloc that was labor intensive, capital intensive, and and wanted and wanted FDR to open foreign markets, and then you can go through, uh, you know, certainly the Cold War and civil rights. Um, uh, uh, the the U.S. military itself becomes the the only venue, real venue in which there's class and race mobility, and 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 what in other countries are distributed as social rights get 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 administered as veterans benefits in the in the u.s and there really is no the, the the when the suffragist movement traded their support for world war one mainstream suffragists in support for wilson's support for the vote so you know we could even talk about clinton-style globalization and the expansion of rights related to sexual identity and 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 cultural rights because there is no ex- there, there and so what do we do with that right what do we do with that fact that there, that 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 the whole premise of the expansion of u.s liberalism to previously excluded groups has has gone has has basically made, only been made possible on the back of the expansion of national power
1: um <laughs> I yeah that uh, yep. little depressing you might say <laughs> I, I, I wanted to uh, reverse course, like uh, d- just to circle back to the n- the New Deal era, you have some interesting things to say about the n- the New Deal. Um, as I-, I would say, uh, m- maybe the only period that and, and the sort of post war settlement where uh, uh, the the sort of foundational as the 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 foundation of politics moved towards like being basically class-based, I I guess. And FDR has some interesting things to say about the frontier – that that jar somewhat. It's a it's a contradictory relationship, right? But he doesn't talk about it like like Jackson, for example, right?
2: Yeah, or Turner. Yeah, that, that that was the power of the frontier thesis is that it contained within within itself the terms of its own critique. So if you thought that the frontier created individualism, if you thought individualism was a good thing, then you celebrated. If you thought individualism was something that needed to be contained, then you can use the same Basically, fundamental analysis, but to critique it, and a lot of the New Deal intellectuals and policymakers, including FDR, FDR took a class. Turner transferred from from with Madison to to Harvard, and FDR took a class with with uh, with Turner. But <laughs> apparently, he was he was down sailing. He took he skipped the semester and went sailing in the Caribbean. But he must have absorbed, <laughs> he must have absorbed something because FDR was brilliant at using the frontier theory to explain the crisis, right? To, to explain the sources of American wealth, the why in the past um, during moments of economic uh, contraction, you, you know, there was always an, a, 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 an exit door or a safety valve. You know, farmers could pull up stakes and move on and that prevented the establishment of big government. So he could use the frontier thesis to explain why a government that in the past Had regulated very little, needed to regulate more, and and he you know he was a brilliant communicator so he he could say you know but those days are gone, and 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 other New Dealers use the frontier thesis to to articulate a kind of new form of social citizenship. They basically affix the word social to all of these old ternarian categories. Henry Wallace talked about to tame the social frontier, to tame the social wilderness, you know, social security, social individualism, social rights, social democracy. You know, all of this kind of emerges the way the New Deal kind of resonated and articulated a new, a new common sense. A lot of it was within a, a Ternarian framework.
1: Yeah, it's, it strikes me uh, just now that, that it's pretty telling that Whenever there's some sort of social ill, the, the instinctive tendency is to declare war on it, war on poverty, war on drugs, war on litter, war on homelessness, as if, like, we're going to go, you know, man the barricades and shoot homelessness down.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, there's, there's that. And and that has gotten worse as it's been, you know, because in a lot of ways, war, you know, this goes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier about Madison's uh, a premise, right, that the best way to, to, to ensure the diversity of experience and prevent factionalism and extremism is to ex- that extend the sphere. But the way, that, the way that one extended the sphere was through militarism and war. So there was a slight kind of conflation, a quick conflation of expansion as being a, a condition of freedom to expansion being freedom. And and, and 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 to the degree that expansion was made possible on, only through militarism, militarism was understood as freedom. So, yes, there was a way in which the discourse of social problems were, were you know, in the U.S. And, and political culture like the U.S. is very susceptible to that kind of militarized rhetoric.
0: Well, and that's a very interesting point about the conflation, because the conflation works alongside the friend-enemy distinction. As long as you don't care that the people that are harmed in that expansion, uh, as long as they're designated the out group, not part of the demos, not part of the polis, not part of we, then it is just pure liberation for those that benefit from that domination and expansion and violence, right? So that that, that might play into how um, Trump and the reactionary Right has a long lineage in in using the frontier and the myth of the frontier to their advantage because uh, I hope that we'll get eventually to to hope is as as bis- abysmal as the history has been uh, of how uh, socialism or the left can can kind of feed the imaginary in a way that might uh, better better serve right our 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 whole nation of people not just those that are that are designated um, you know by the right as counting.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the argument that I make is that Trump turns Turner on his head. It's, it's the, the way that the, the border wall has, has supplanted the frontier as the central icon or symbol of American nationalism. And, and Trumpism is what happens when when, when an empire ends, when, when, you know, you can no longer... Vent or roll over the extremism outward. Uh, even if you can no longer, you know, shoot it outward and it all, and it comes back into the heartland. And you know, I, I link it to the you know three great closings, right? The 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 end, the exhaustions, the ex- exhaustion of the New York conservative project with with Iraq and the end of that kind of ability to mount these. Um, uh, messianic campaigns to channel, as a political project of civic renewal, you know, um, the end, the exhaustion of, the, of a neoliberal growth, uh, the, the growth model that, you know, with, happened after 2008, and then, of course, climate collapse, right? All of these things signal the end of empire or the end of the ability to use the promise of expansion to organize domestic politics, to respond to domestic demands, and so Trump and Trumpism is what happens when, when, when that's over, when that ends.
0: But it's a scary but brilliant insight to say that now borders are everywhere. It's almost like borders are limitless. And, and so you, you make this fan, fantastically interesting um, illustration that, in a way, borders are the new frontier for Trump and Trumpism.
2: Yeah, yeah, border—it's a way of organizing. You know, I mean, Trump's wall was a, is a, even well before Trump, right? The, the the borderlands began to attract these lost boys of empire, right? I mean, you know, I mean, you know what? Starting around 2000 is when the border militias—the mo- most recent iteration of border vigilanteism—took off, but it was circumvented and cut short by 2001. 2000, you know, the, the, the war, the, the 9-11 and then Bush's rallying the nation into Afghanistan, Iraq, kind of once again pointed the nation outward. But as those wars started to go wrong, right, as they were revealed to be both a moral and tactical catastrophe, um, uh, uh, the border movement started anew. So there's almost a direct correlation between I mean it's a lot of different markers or indicators for the collapse of that neoconservative post 9-11 foreign policy but certainly Abu Ghraib and those pictures from Abu Ghraib and of of U.S. soldiers torturing Iraqis and sexually abusing Iraqi prisoners is certainly as good a marker as any and and the founding of the Minutemen project it, it happened almost exactly as the Abu Ghraib story broke in the press. And from that point forward, 2005, border militia and the border militia movement and the vigilante movement basically began to take over the Republican Party. And they're the ones that, of course, stopped George W. Bush's effort at immigration reform. And then they went on to, you know, to to realize themselves in Donald Trump. So what's interesting about that is that, is that, most oftentimes these revanchist movements happen after the war is over. Vietnam, you know, in the 1970s, you know, World War I, uh, 1898. I would talk about all of this in the book. We're living in a moment where these kind of revanchist movements is happening as the war is continually going on, right? We're living simultaneously in this endless war, even as the backlash is happening as the war is going on.
1: Yeah, um we can definitely see that but um it all it this this process sort of starts with vietnam right as as you write in the book like that that was uh maybe you might say the first major you know overseas sort of frontier style war that just backfired spectacularly and the united states was defeated right and the politics of vietnam just landed in like a hand grenade in the the democratic coalition and sort of stopped the civil rights movement in its tracks more or less right
2: yeah vietnam and the backlist of vietnam and reagan's and and reagan's um uh post vietnam restoration right is, is 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 a key part of the story and his his um return of the frontier i mean there's lots of different um lots of different kind of Time periods that, that were, were nested time periods we're talking about, but certainly the end of the New Deal coalition, the Democratic coalition that you talked about, and, and, and it's unraveling with Vietnam, and, and you know, uh, and and uh, and and then Reagan's restoration of the frontier and the promise of once again overcoming and transcending and moving outward, and you know, as he said, nothing is impossible; um, there are no limits and um uh but 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 yoking that to uh to to uh, to that politics of resentment and backlash that reagan was good at controlling but has eventually escaped that control and taken over the republican party
1: this may be uh just on a side note here there there's been a bit of discussion about uh The Sandinistas and Reagan's policy uh, uh, of arming the Contra rebels, as well as death squads, the Contras in Nicaragua and death squads in El Salvador and Honduras. Um, Maybe just your your quick take on on whether he whether whether he was correct to. Be opposed to Reagan's uh, uh, Central America foreign policy, and, and and whether that's a problem, as uh, Jonathan Chait said in an article yesterday.
2: Well, you know, yeah, Bernie Sanders. I mean, I, I read a whole other book, Empire's Workshop, about all of this, the role of Central America in 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 the restoration of an of, a, of, a, of an imperial presidency, and the way Reagan used Central America to unite movement conservatives and to overcome all of those restrictions placed on the executive branch. After, after, um, after, after Watergate and after Vietnam, and um, you know the irony of this, of of, of these reporters going after uh, Bernie Sanders, is that you know, uh, to a large degree, one of the things that the Contra War, I mean, and and just on completely moral terms, Sanders, of course, is absolutely correct. The U.S. supported these murderous, rapist, torturers. Some of those brutal forces in Central America, death squads in El Salvador that killed seventy thousand, uh, the Contras in Nicaragua that killed fifty thousand, that explicitly used terror as a way, as a, as a tactic of war. Um, so Sanders, on absolute moral terms, is absolutely right for, for 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 being opposed to that. But Iran, but but Reagan's support of the Contra war was also um, also involved a psychotic, psych ops operation in the united states one aspect of iran contra that doesn't get talked about is that it created this office of public diplomacy in 1983 run de- running out of the state department that out reich was in charge of and the whole point was to figure out ways to contain journalists and opinion makers that had gone off the reservation with vietnam that had become too critical and they used nicaragua as a way to re-educate U.S.'s mainstream, you know, punditry class. So, you know, the Office of Public Diplomacy was quite an impressive psych operations. It was staffed by CIA spooks and Department of Defense spooks It worked hand in hand with Madison Avenue Republican uh, uh, Republican PR firms to figure out how to reframe the debate. What keywords were terrorism, anti-Semitism, you know, all of this stuff, and um and they planted stories in the press. So you know, this Jonathan Chait and or, and and whoever that reporter was in the New York Times, Sydney or whatever that person was, you know,
1: Ember Sydney Ember Sydney
2: Ember. The Ember. They, I mean, you know, they're just products of that restoration. I mean, they 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 they, they have they are part of a, you know a pundit class that has that was successfully. Been re educated by the new right. And, and part of that re education, the, the, the main instrument of that education was Nicaragua and the Contra War. So the irony of Jonathan Schott criticizing Bernie Sanders for being opposed to Reagan's, Reagan's support of the Contras is, have, plays out on multiple levels.
0: Which reminds me of the, the Bill Crystal interaction with Bernie Sanders on Twitter where he uh, calls him quasi- Stalinist which again shows how much of, of the right and even liberals like Chait are, are this pure projection right it seems like the re-education takes place on the right actually
2: yeah it takes place you know it takes place on every level uh, Bill Crystal went on C-span I went on the news I, uh, on March 20- 28 2003 to say that he hoped that what the u.s achieves in iraq is what the u.s achieved in el salvador i mean he explicitly held up el salvador as an amazing success story and so kind of the, the the hidden history the deep history of central america in the 1980s not not so much for the why those those particular countries were important because their importance relied on their unimportance they were you know central america had no nuclear weapons they had no natural resources no n- there was no major superpower that was going to you know kick in to defend them so the U. so reagan could basically give nicaragua and el salvador and honduras and guatemala to movement conservatives to let them run wild and 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 that's where the project of restoring a kind of um Ability, of uh, uh, imperial presidency, which included ways to bring the press and punditry back on board, uh, took place, and so that's that's why these things never go away. That's why we have Elliot Abrams. That's why we have. That's why you know. That's why we, you know. We can't escape these. You know, John Bolton came up through Iran Contra. I mean, it, you know, the whole war-making establishment was routed through Iran Contra. As were these Christian. You know these these right wing Christian uh, organizations
0: like Ralph Reed and so forth. Yeah, yeah, you no, know,
2: because because liberation theology. I mean, this is getting a little off topic, but liberation theology was the first political religion that you that, that motivated the Christian right to get involved in foreign policy before they moved on to political Islam.
0: Because it was emancipatory, because and because it, it defines, and it was yes.
2: within the principles of the Enlightenment. You know, it was humanist, and it was much more of a threat. It was an imminent threat, you know, and that's so, right. Yeah,
0: I, I think this, this. So this is a question I have for you about uh, today, and and it, it seems, you know, sp- spoiler: it's socialism or barbarism, right? But the the way <laughs> yeah, the uh, the way that the the myth of the frontier and the political imaginary or social imaginary um, relates to. How freedom is theorized and, and which which side gets to control how to define freedom seems very important, right? Because you you know, in talking about the, the Minutemen and and the border replacing the frontier, you still see the the right uh, linking freedom to guns and going and shooting people, and and that's you know uh, seems to be this individualistic violent form of freedom uh, that the right seems to love. Uh, the left, of course, has a different vision of what freedom might mean, and and you talk about Eugene Debs, you talk about possibly uh, a socialist. Frontier myth that might be appropriated right, or, or that historically there were cowboy radicals, how might we think through this contestation today about uh, the frontier myth and, and how to define freedom
2: well there, there are as you said, there are different divisions, there are different ways of defining freedom, and one through line from the Jacksonians forward has been freedom as freedom from restraint, and that 's a vision of freedom that's inherently racialized, that's inherently uh, based on domination, that white settlers moved out in the world claiming an ever greater freedom. And it's true. It wasn't just a myth. There was no other people who had as much freedom as white settlers in the United States. And they they, they claim that freedom by putting down people of color and then defining that freedom, uh, freedom as freedom from restraint in opposition to the people that they put down, people of color, you know, African American slaves, Mexicans, Native Americans. So that's an inherently racialized vision of freedom. But there's other there's other understandings of freedom. Freedom as obligation. Freedom as mutualism. Freedom as, as social responsibility. Recognizing one's dependence on others. You know, these are other currents and traditions that um, that have roots in, in in the history of the United States. Now, one of the things that um, that the frontier myth, though, did was that it, it marginalized uh, what might be called extremism, and it, and it allowed the United, uh, but extremism on both the left, both the right, the white you know the white supremacists, but also, you know, kind of property rights threatening extremism or militancy, and it put forward this kind of liberal universalism as the highest form of democracy, and it allowed the U.S. to defer a question or an option that other countries in different ways confronted and that option was socialism or barbarism and now that the now that the the sphere is, has been deflated and the frontier is closed and 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 the promise of limitlessness is, has been negated um the us is i think confronting that opposition and and hence we have you know the emergence of um of, of, of social democracy and not just social democracy another way of thinking about it is social rights right what is exceptional about the United States is its insistence that the only rights that are valid are, are individual rights are political rights are rights based on the restraint of the state you know Congress shall make no laws other countries have balanced those in those individual rights which with the idea of social rights, that the state has to actively act to create virtue. So when Bernie Sanders says that the United States is the only country in the world that doesn't have a right to health international, you know, to, to care, what he's, he's, it's really a profound critique of American exceptionalism. And, and what we're seeing now, I think, is the emergence of, of a generation that believes in the validity of social rights. That thinks it's you know that that uh, and I think that is a major challenge too, and, and a source of and a source of hope.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. As you as you say, you know the 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 Trump phenomenon is the racist, revanchist sort of id of the Republican Party breaking loose from any constraints and, and turned inward. T- right. Yes. T- yeah. And, t- and turning from yeah like. Uh, brown, you know, waging war on brown people 7,000 miles away to just kind of rounding up any brown people that are, that are sort of handy. Um, the, and the, you know, the, the odiousness of that is, is uh, obvious enough. But another sort of aspect of the situation is there's, there's been just a, a tremendous backlash to that kind of thinking. You know, as you say, the, 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 Immigrant camps where, you know, the mass deportation facilities and so on that were President Obama and got worse under Trump suddenly are getting mass media coverage. And um, I was just looking at this Gallup poll, uh, the, the, the percentage of people that say, uh, on the whole, do you think immigration is a good thing or a bad thing for this country today? Uh, 2018, about a year ago, a uh, good thing was 75 percent, which was as high as it's ever been since uh, 2001 and so do you do you think there's uh that uh trump's that, that that this politics is sort of just like uh reaching its sort of like logical end point or is there's there's still some life left in it
2: well you know it's hard to say i mean politics i mean you know the, the the weather something i mean these have to do with very um on the ground questions about the ability to mobilize you know even if he has only 30 or 40% support the ability to mobilize that 30 or 40% if there's no if there's no organized opposition you know would mean that there's still life in it and you know i i, I think that trump by spectacularizing uh, and 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 turning uh, the brutalism that had long existed on the border and had been bipartisan in many ways into a partisan politics, uh, I mean, a pageantry of, of of cruelty has obviously created its opposite and its reaction. And so um, and I say so that's a good thing, I think. But um, whether there's any life in it depends on, I guess, you know, questions of, you know, more in the weeds, questions about the Democratic Party and the electoral system, and <laughs> right, you know, and things like that. But, but god
0: I'm saying no, no. So if we think about that side of it, the response that's required, and, and I mean, because on the on the one hand, you see how the clear. I mean, climate change is becoming something even Republicans are believing in, finally, right? So so the, the, the limitlessness is is obviously coming to an end in the minds of almost everyone. And that, of course, gave gave rise to the prevalence of borders as, as one response. Um, on the left, it's difficult because many leftists think, it, you know, in terms of expanding political imagination and possibilities need to be, uh, be, you know, we can't foresee the end of capitalism. It's easier to imagine the end of the world. Uh, how, how does one think of, as a leftist, Pushing the boundaries of imagination of the possible, uh, in the context of very real scarcity and very real limits that people are becoming aware of, as as they should.
2: Yeah. So I mean, you know, so there is a there is a temptation to think that Trumpism or others might call race realism which has deep roots in american political tradition as a in in opposition to the idea of a politics of limitlessness and frontier you know there there's always been a kind of anglo-saxon current that has explicitly said you know you you know you know the world has to be organized around lines of dominance it's you know it's not there's not just an open frontier we've we've hit you know the world is finite and we have to recognize that 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 Finiteness and, and organize our politics around it. There's a temptation to think Trumpism is a more realistic, albeit uh, cruel, way of thinking about how the world really works. But it's not true, right? Because because we've seen that's the that's the lesson of the New Deal. We've saw that there there are other responses to the reality of scarcity and to the acknowledgement of limits that could be more humane, based on a notion of freedom not as freedom as as freedom from restraint but freedom as interdependence and, and obligation and 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 social responsibility and that, that there is a tradition within the United States of that so the point about trumpism it's easy to think of trump to wall as a kind of disenchantment right that it's 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 acknowledged, it's a it's a brutal insistence that the that the that the conceits of the liberal order that it stands against you know, you know, that was always based on a falsehood, was always based on the notion that uh, there's not enough to go around, not all boats could be lifted. And Trump and, and the wall is just a more brutal acknowledgement of that of that truth. But the point is that the wall is its own enchantment, because because this what the wall says is that it it authorizes this this definition of freedom as freedom from restraint that we that if we just build the world wall we could continue doing whatever we want we can continue to burn we continue to shoot we continue to you know and and so freedom from restraint becomes this kind of cultural uh, representative. cruelty becomes a cultural, A a kind of another wedge issue in cultural politics. Who's going to tell us that we can't put kids in jail? Who's going to tell us that we can't burn fossil fuels? You know, so it's its own illusion that everything can continue going on as it had before if we just build the wall. And and that's obviously not.
0: <laughs> that's not. That's not. The, it's it's the ultimate fantasy, the ultimate to- toddler reactance to actual boundaries being set, but now under the <laughs> under the guise of responsibility and with guns, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And
2: and it's and it's the way that cruelty just becomes this partisan. You know this. You know culturally represent. Who's going to tell us that we can't torture? Who's going to tell us that we can't? Well, who's going to tell us that we can't issue pardons to war criminals? You know, I mean, this is all just different expressions of this, of this definition of freedom as freedom from Mm -hmm. restraint, which, um, which one is not the only, you know, it's, 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 um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not ultimately not viable, clearly not viable in the world.
0: No. So. My, my concern, my concern, Greg, is that the, the you know, this, this Hobbesian uh, freedom uh, as license and this kind of tyrannical narcissistic thing that has is, is, Kind of been like a virus spreading throughout the country, needs to be met with freedom as you as you've described, but which I mean, in other words, is aligned with some vision of the good, right? Which you say has involves responsibility and and, and social interdependence and and so forth. Uh, I wonder though if if even social rights, if rights discourse, which seems to be bound up with the law and the state, might be insufficient. Insofar as it seems to affirm that what the status quo does is is kind of enough, and the status quo in the state is kind of the last refuge, whereas there seems to, to be the need on the left for perhaps a more uh, radical approach that that has both more vision and more agency than uh, what maybe what a rights discourse might defer to. What, what, what do, you do you think, think of that? that?
2: I mean, I think that that's true. I mean, I think that you know both things are true. I think you know one recognizing how radical the, the discourse of social rights is within the context of of, of, of the united states and the fetish of individualism and the, right, and and right. And, the, and to the degree that individual that individual supremacy a recognition that individual supremacy is white supremacy is a pretty radical proposition mm. and to ignore mm. and to and to work through it and to understand it and understand its historical sources and and what we're up against but yeah i think ultimately you you might be very well right considering you know, considering how bad things are that 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 or, you know that's that just a a move towards social rights is, isn't isn't enough considering considering the you know the direness of the situation
1: um i've got a uh, as as we're close. uh Close to finishing up here, I, I have an interesting, uh, just a bit of maybe historical trivia or something that I didn't know about that that I think our listeners might be interested in. Which was uh, some some radical aspects of the Mexican Constitution that were basically annulled by the NAFTA treaty. Um, so, ca- can you explain how those worked and and what happened to them?
2: Well, so the logic, just to set it up, and so a lot of the book. Goes back and forth between the United States and Mexico with the argument that um, uh, um, you know U.S.'s relationship with Mexico is a, is a key element in the foundation of, of of the United States. A sense of exceptionalism, and that very brief moment during the New Deal when 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 policymakers overcame that exceptionalism. So that the Mexican Constitution in in 1917, which came out of the Mexican Revolution, this bloody revolution. Which was, in many ways, the first third world revolution against against capital. Against you know, the U.S. moved into Mexico after the Civil War and restructured its economy and politics. You know, a nation built and it and it and it and it promoted export economy that led to the miseration of millions. And in 1910, there was this massive nationalist revolution that destroyed millions of dollars of U.S. property and nationalized U.S. companies and the, the Constitution that was passed in 1917 acknowledged was the first was the world's first social democratic constitution it was the first constitution that tried to balance individual rights and social rights education healthcare a right to a dignified life but it also said that property was a social right created by the state and this was the foundation of the Mexican revolution's great land reform you know this this unbelievable you know it's it's a it's a complicated history But Mexico distributed an enormous amount of land. It would have been the equivalent as if FDR returned, uh, you know, uh, the Cherokees, their nation uh, east of the Mississippi. You know, that's that's basically what 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 the Mexican state did and it it returned it it distributed and created these collective farms uh, called the Hilos and. Um, and, and that was the foundation of the Mexican miracle, economic miracle, which lasted for quite a while, but then entered into crisis in the 1970s and 80s. And NAFTA basically uh, was based on, a re- on, on, predicated on Mexico passing laws that watered down its land reform and, and, uh, and basically began to reverse it.
0: Fascinating. Do you do, with one last question, if you don't mind, Greg, I, I know you know you have to go soon, but um, I, I don't want to let you go without asking about. Since you know you just talked about NAFTA and we've been talking about Trump, the left discourse on open borders, uh, both in term both right both in terms of what that might actually mean in terms of policy, but also in terms of. Um, because we've talked about the intersection of, of political uh, theory and how it's appropriated for political power, um, if the, how should the left think through uh, the discussion of open borders and whether that is a dangerous uh, term to use? And, and maybe just talk a bit about your response to all of that. Yeah. You know, I,
2: again, like everything else, I, I, uh, I, I try to answer the question with the, by, 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 um, by, by thinking through the historical context and, 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 and what function – the the border plays now the 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 creation of the u.s mexican border has been a has has been you know has been central to the establishment of north american capitalism and a form of labor arbitrage that has created multiple multiple hierarchies of wage labor multiple tiers in, in a in a in a in a labor hierarchy that that has been shifted around over the years as the needs of capital has changed um I, I don't know what the solution is. There used to be open borders. I mean, the border didn't exist. There was seasonal migration. Uh, the militarization of the border has, has, create, has indisputably created the crisis by trapping migrants in the United States who might have previously been seasonal migrants. Um, I tend to think that if capital and... And and, and, and and commodities have the right to flow freely and then, then and labor should have the right to flow freely it's, it's the only it's the only kind of um, way one could imagine checks on on capital. I know the political limitations of a position like that, but I don't I don't know what other what other solution there would be other than to move towards some kind of system in which um, in which there was a free flow of people across the Americas.
0: So you support yeah, it? Sounds like you support uh, open borders, but would you use the term? Yeah, I, yeah of course
2: I support open yeah. borders. I also, but I also I support a lot of things that I know that's never going to
0: happen. So. <laughs> uh, unless we make it happen, Greg. Unless we make it happen, we have to, right? We're yeah. the ones that we have to. We have to do it. We're the left. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, let's do one, it.
1: one. Um, that's a that's an important point, though. I think in in as you know, um, you're talking about how Mexico. Uh, And, you know, a a lot of the other Central American countries previously used to have uh, a lot more um, uh, stable societies before they were blown apart by U.S. meddling. And certainly, I mean, if you're talking about a sort of like a Schengen area from Canada down to to Panama or something, um, that that should not just be uh, just like... Uh, we'll open the southern border and just like suck the entire population of Central America into the U.S. to work, you know, as as like domestic servants or whatever. Like, it should also be coupled to a, a trade regime which which uh, uh, allows those societies to stabilize themselves, yeah, right? The right? Because to
2: stay, right? Not just I, the right to move, the right to stay, the right to stay yeah. in your
1: home. We don't, you know, like those the the refugee Crisis is terrible, and we should we should uh, you know house just all those people. But it would be better still if they'd never had to leave their homes. That's a great in, way and, to and, put in it in the and first n- place.
0: Not not just a right to move, but a right not to be displaced. <laughs> a right <laughs> not but to the, be moved. But yeah. the
2: profundity of the problem, the drug war. The uh, the, yeah. the extraction regime, yeah. the history of political violence, you know, the deep histories of political violence and repression. Inextricable. Like it's a little, it's it's inextricable and hard to, you know. So when people say, "Well, we need a Marshall plan" or something like that, I mean, yeah, that, that sounds great, but but often what that means is is just creating more infrastructure for dispossession and extraction, rather than a real a real alternative, you know, to 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 the.
0: Greg, I, I feel like what you're saying is imperialism and global capitalism are linked and what we need to do, the workers of the world need to unite, we need to overthrow capitalism. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I can get on board with that. I'm glad that was the conclusion. I, I want that to be the conclusion of every episode of Left Anchor, so I'm glad that this All one... Right. Is one... <laughs>
1: um, great. Well, uh, It's been a real Greg pleasure, Grand- Greg. The, the book is called um, yeah, the book is called The End of the Myth, available in, in bookstores now.
0: Almost right. Uh, definitely checking it out. I think you almost got it right. Greg, you want to give them the, the, the actual title? Well, that was, no, earlier you said The End of the Frontier, but this time you said it right. The End of the Myth. Oh, good.
1: Oh, shit. Sorry. Sorry. The End of
2: the Myth from the, <laughs> from the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America.
1: Yeah. Um, great. Well, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, always welcome back. Uh, thanks. Um, Thanks Pleasure. To we'll see you next time. Yeah, it was time.
0: a great conversation. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with five dollars a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.